0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back into your latest episode of Locked on Colts, Prairie Locked on Podcast Network. Today's always your host, Evan Sutter, by everybody at special guest today's show, Jesse Temple of The Athletic Wisconsin. Jesse, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for coming on today because we're going to talk all about Jonathan Taylor, the Colts' 41st overall pick in the second round of this year's 2020 NFL Draft. And you had a chance to cover Jonathan Taylor's career at Wisconsin, Jesse. Just for those listening, there, at Colts fans and didn't have the chance to watch much Wisconsin football. What was it like covering Jonathan Taylor?
1: Well, he was an all-time great running back and not just at Wisconsin, but in the history of college football, uh, which is pretty crazy to say because he made his mark in, in just three years. He's the only player... To rush for more than 6,000 yards in only three years. He finished sixth in the FBS in history in rushing yards. And I think he did it with a level of humility that is both refreshing and rare. He never changed who he was. Uh, and that was kind of part of the package of Jonathan Taylor. He just worked his butt off and he got better every year. And he went from being a first and second down running back to an every down back that an NFL team like the Colts will be able to rely on.
0: Yeah. And I think with Jonathan Taylor, especially, you go back and Look at his career numbers. It's absolutely bonkers what he puts up. He had 12 200-plus-yard games in his career. only had nine sub-100-yard games. So it just tells you the type of dominance Jonathan Taylor had over his career at Wisconsin. But Jesse wanted to hit on just the character traits of Jonathan Taylor here because the Colts as an organization really value character in the players they draft. And for anything I've read, I read your feature story last year from on Jonathan Taylor. If you have not already, go ahead and read that over on The Athletic, hard-nosed but hard-driven about Jonathan Taylor, the Wisconsin roommate written by Jesse right here on the show. I wanted to hit on that for a second, Jesse. What was it like writing that story? And the, the, the more and more you learn, and feel like the onion, so to say, about John Taylor, the person.
1: Well, I think the thing that stood out is when I would talk to teammates, they would often say that he didn't necessarily know how good he was. Like, he didn't carry himself in that fashion, certainly not early in his career. Uh, and I think, again, that speaks to the level of humility that he has and the way that he carried himself even in high school. He wasn't one of these five-star running backs that everybody – was recruiting. And obviously he had some good offers. He initially uh, committed to Rutgers and wound up picking Wisconsin, but he really burst onto the scene in his first fall camp at Wisconsin. I, I remember reporters have access to a fair number of fall camp practices in their entirety at Wisconsin. And I didn't hear his name called once in the first couple weeks. He was like the fourth or fifth running back opening fall camp because there was so much depth. And then there were some injuries. And then he participated in a scrimmage two weeks before the season opener. It was a Friday night scrimmage under the lights at Camp Randall Stadium, and he broke a 70-yard touchdown run. And the first-team defense, which wound up being one of the best in college football that year, they were all looking at each other like, is this guy unbelievable or are we terrible? And it turned out he was pretty amazing, and by week two he was a starter and never looked back. And, uh, again, I think it speaks to just he never changed his approach in terms of how hard he worked, Uh, and he always felt like he had to prove himself. And he even said when I talked to him during the offseason this this past year that you know he wanted people to remember him as that nobody worked harder than him and that he was the best running back they ever played with and so far he's lived lived up to that.
0: Yeah, his three years at Wisconsin for those wondering, he had at least 1,900 rushing yards all three years of his career. Just goes to show you just the type of player he was and how against Big Ten defense, especially Taylor, really had his way at times. But for those wondering as well, Jesse. From watching Wisconsin, obviously it's a throwback type of team as far as power run game. And the way they built that around Jonathan Taylor this past year, what was it like watching that offense when Taylor got in his groove? I know there's a lot of games over the years where Taylor went off, but any specific ones that stand out to you most?
1: Boy, that's a, that's a really good question. There's a, a few that stand out. Um, and as you said, I mean, i covered every game that Jonathan played, but there was one that they played two seasons ago. I think it was 2018 against Purdue, and it was at Purdue. And the game went to triple overtime and he literally carried the team on his back. You know, he, I remember he was just so exhausted. He scored the game winning touchdown in the third overtime. um, And he was just kind of like bent over and people were coming up to him. Like you are different, you know, like you're a different kind of player. Um, And that one stands out to me. The season opener this past year against South Florida stands out. It was on the road in Tampa and Wisconsin made a concerted effort to get him the ball through the air. And he just, he showed the country, this is what I've been working on. So those are a couple of things that stand out. But another thing that I'd want to mention is, you know, you talk about Wisconsin and kind of the, the power offense and the run first system that the Badgers have, that's been established for the last 30 years. I think sometimes running backs in the system can kind of get the reputation of they're only a product of the system. And with Jonathan Taylor, you know, for Colts fans who are listening, I would point out that that, that is not the case. Certainly, he was the beneficiary of, of an offense that wanted to run the ball. He ran the ball as much as anyone in college football behind a massive offensive line. But his skill set was unique because he had a blend of vision, power, and speed. And like I said, he diversified his game to be a pass catching threat as well.
0: Yeah, and that's the big part I think of Taylor's game. It's going to expand more and more in the NFL. I know Colts Jim Chris Boward said that Taylor's ability they showed it as pro day as far as catching the ball really caught their eye and really could see a lot bigger role in that in the future for this Colts team. But With Jonathan Taylor, too, just you look at the production, the amount of touches, too. I know Taylor is a player, we heard about this a lot through the Colts as well, that they've heard he takes care of his body really well. And almost over 1,000 touches in his college career, Jesse. I know some Colts fans are wondering as far as the trail on his tires go. But from what I've read, the stories about Jonathan Taylor, he really does take care of his body an awful lot.
1: He certainly does. And I will tell you this, uh, after every single game of his career – He was the last player to arrive for interviews in the media room because that's exactly what he was doing. He was in the cold tub. He was doing recovery, uh, and he would take as long as it needed because he certainly deserved uh, that time off. You mentioned how many carries he had. He ran the ball 926 times, and and that doesn't even take into account uh, some of the receptions that he had. He ranked third in the FBS uh, in rushing attempts as a freshman. He was first as a sophomore, and he was second as a junior. And I understand that people look at those numbers. And as you said, there's, they call it tread on the tires and you wonder how much he has left, but he never missed a start over his last 40 games. And he continued to punish defenses. And in the second half, if you were wearing down, he was just getting started. And so I think that there's something to be said for that. Certainly he's got a lot of carries, but he's been able to, to be healthy and to maintain his body.
0: I know, obviously, Jesse, you've covered the career of Jonathan Taylor, game one through the end of his career. But looking back on other Wisconsin running backs recently, like Melvin Gordon, what's different about Jonathan Taylor? I know he, he had the 4.39 speed. It really caught everyone off guard at, at the combine, just how freakishly fast he was for a 226 pounder. But any other traits that stand out to you with Jonathan Taylor, maybe stand out differently than other Wisconsin running backs of the past?
1: I think you just touched on it. For a, a 226 pound guy who's the third heaviest running back at the NFL combine, to run a 4.39 second 40-yard dash, just, I mean, it blew me away, and I covered him for three seasons. Um, Melvin Gordon, to me, had the single greatest season I've ever seen by a Wisconsin running back. Now, I wasn't around when Ron Dane was carrying the rock in the late 1990s and won the Heisman Trophy, but their, Ron Dane's skill set was entirely different. I, I think, you know, if, if Jonathan Taylor can have the type of career that Melvin has had so far, uh, that's, that's not a bad place to be. You know, both those guys... Uh, had that sort of total package where they developed into pass catchers later in their career. And I know Melvin was utilized in that capacity, certainly uh, during his NFL career to date. And so I I think that's something that Jonathan's going to be able to do as well. So it's the ability to run between the tackles. It's having the top end speed to run away from guys. And it's having the versatility to be used in different packages.
0: Yeah. And you look at the versatility that Taylor's going to provide to those Colts offense, it really is exciting the more you dive into it. But we were talking a little bit earlier just about just the leadership factor and the character of Jonathan Taylor. He was a team captain in this past year for Wisconsin. You were on practices and games, obviously, all the time. What's we'll up to you as far as Taylor's leadership ability goes? Because I can easily see a scenario where, in a couple years, Taylor is one of the alpha leaders of this Colts team in a new era.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, the the story that you referenced from the offseason, uh, the headline is soft-spoken but hard-nosed. And, and so I, I think certainly initially in his Wisconsin career, he, he was not the – the loudest guy. He was not the guy beating his chest. And actually when I talked to Wisconsin running backs coach, John settle, that was one thing that he wanted Jonathan to improve on as he entered uh, his junior season last year was, you know, you, you know you're the guy and and you can act like it. That doesn't mean that you're a jerk to other people, but you speak up and they will listen. And I think that's something that he really learned this season. I actually remember the very first fall camp practice that we watched. um, He was going through, It was a drill where uh, they fire the footballs from the machine uh, so you can catch passes from a short distance. Wide receivers use it a lot, but running backs do too, and he was running in motion and catching passes. And there were a bunch of other running backs who were around him watching, and I could see Jonathan giving very small pointers about stuff like that. Uh, And that's when it struck me, like in the very first practice of his junior year, that he's somebody who's now developed his voice, and people are willing to listen. And certainly if he's productive in the NFL, you can see why teammates would want to follow his lead.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what's really exciting, too. Not only the on-field aspect of John Taylor, but the off-field aspect as well. And that's why I think the Colts really valued him as much as they did, because I know they're with the next pick series they put out on their YouTube page. One of the scouts called John Taylor Captain America, because I think they would regret picking this guy if they didn't, because he checked every single box for them as far as character and on-field traits go. But we hit on the, the best game of John Taylor's career, but any, what other moments does team you most, Jesse? It could be on the field, off the field. What other moments should Colts fans know as far as John Taylor, the person or the player?
1: I think it goes back to just the way that he carried himself. Um, he could have a 250-yard game, and when you're speaking to him after the game, you you wouldn't necessarily know that he was he was that guy. Uh, I felt like he was very well spoken, very eloquent. Um, maybe maybe. Uh, uh, fairly well polished with the media, which I think you don't normally see from a kid who's who's fresh out of high school. But um, I think those are some things that'll stand out to me. He had so many great games. That it's kind of hard to, to pin them down, uh, but he was the guy for three straight years and he always lived up to, to being that guy every game.
0: Yeah. And that, that really does show you just how impressive Taylor's career was and you, the gaudy numbers are just incredible to look at on the box score sheet. But when you dive into more, like you mentioned, Jesse, your stories they've written on Taylor in the past, just the character and the person he is, I think is going to be an incredible fit in the Indianapolis the Colts organization here. But looking at this fit for a second, Jesse, with John Taylor with the Colts, who would have thought that? Because honestly, I really wasn't thinking they were going to go running back early in the draft. They had Marlon Mack on their roster, Naeem Hines. But I love the fit. You go get Quentin Nelson up front, now you put John Taylor behind that. That has a chance to be, I think, a really lethal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said I'd studied Indianapolis' roster uh, in any capacity. But if you added Jonathan Taylor to your team, you are absolutely going to get better. Uh, there's no red flags. All you can say is that he carried the ball a lot, but he was incredibly productive. He's the kind of leader that people want to be around, um, and he managed to get better. You look at his freshman year, he rushes for 1,977 yards. He breaks Adrian Peterson's FBS freshman rushing record. And it was very easy to sit there and say, well, how in the heck is he going to follow that up and be better? And he was. He ran for over 2,000 yards as a sophomore and a junior. And so I think that those are some things that um, are important to keep in mind, too. You know, for as good as he's been, he always wants to get better. And he's going to approach that in the same way when he's with the Colts.
0: Yeah, and I think with Jonathan Taylor, that's what's the most exciting parts. I mean, we, we keep diving into it, Jesse. But the more you talk about Jonathan Taylor, the more I get excited because, I think he's going to have an instant impact on this Colts team moving forward here. But anything else, Jesse? I know we've covered, I think, a lot of the bases here for Colts fans, but covering John Taylor's career here, what was it like just from a media interaction standpoint, John Taylor? Because I know from what I've read, and you've hit it on it before, he would usually deflect. I mean, he had a big game, and he talk about the offensive line created the whole for me, the wire series blocked so well. like The humbleness and the selfless character of Taylor really stood out to me when I dove into that kind of aspect of his game.
1: Yep, that's what he's all about. That's exactly who, he's, who he is, and he's kind of been that way, you know, since he grew up in, in New Jersey. Um, and so that's what you're going to get with, with the Colts. If he has a 150-yard rushing game as a rookie, he's going to cite the offensive line for opening holes. Um, and so that, that's, that's something that definitely will stand out with me. Again, you don't always see players that handle themselves in that way. Um, and as a player, you know, one thing I, I should mention because you know, I, I – talking like he's, he's a perfect football player. You know, he did have some issues with fumbling. Um, he fumbled 18 times, and he lost the ball, I think, 15 times in his career. Now, you're going to lose some fumbles when you carry 926 times like he did. Uh, but I do think that is something to monitor moving forward because there were times where ball security certainly was an issue, even though he put a lot of emphasis on it. Um, so that's something he's going to have to show up in the NFL. But other than that, um, you, you know, I think the Colts are, are getting the total package both on and off the field.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I appreciate going on here, Jesse, with us for about 10, 15 minutes covering the career of John Taylor Wisconsin. You saw every single game and most of the press of Taylor's career. So you can go and follow Jesse on Twitter at Jesse Temple. Read his work as the University of Wisconsin beat writer over at The Athletic Wisconsin. Jesse, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Hope you'll enjoy that conversation with Jesse Temple, The Athletic Wisconsin's beat writer for the Wisconsin Badgers. Covered John Taylor's whole career over his three years at Wisconsin. Gave us a lot of good stuff there. And I hope you guys enjoy because that was a fun 15-minute conversation with Jesse. Part two of today's show, though, is going to be with Peter Bukowski, Locked On Packers, as we start off our crossover specials that we're going on in the next couple weeks here. Spending about 15, 20 minutes every show talking to a different team throughout the NFL. And this week is the NFC North, as the Colts will be playing the NFC North this time next year. So, Peter Bukowski, Locked On Packers. Talked a lot about Jordan Love with the Colts' interest, the Packers' interest. Maybe the Colts in an elaborate smoke screen there, Aaron Rodgers' feature there, and a lot of interesting talk for Peter to me about the Colts. I know you guys are going to enjoy that as well. So hope you guys enjoy it. We're going to dive right into this Locked On crossover special here to close out today's show, about 20 minutes with me and Peter Bukowski of Locked On Packers, talking Colts and the Green Bay Packers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back into our crossover specials for this week. I am Evan Sutter of Locked On Colts, joined by Peter Bukowski of Locked On Packers. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. and appreciate you coming on here. I know it's uh, always fun to do some crossovers here. I want to start off first because this is one of the more interesting topics I know among Colts fans. And interestingly enough, he ended up in Green Bay on draft night. Jordan Love. How much did that catch you off guard, especially with Aaron Rodgers now a quarterback?
2: Well, I think when you look at it now in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, the writing was on the wall. Um, it was something that Brian Gudekinst and Matt LaFleur each mentioned. And and Brian Gudekinst actually mentioned it several times in in various offseason press conferences that if they thought there was someone there worth taking, they would take him. And at at the combine, Matt LaFleur was asked about a quarterback and he said, Yeah, you know, we're never gonna we think it's the most important position. And he he went into this whole soliloquy about it and was asked, okay, what is the perfect, you know, draft quarterback look like for you? And he listed a group of strengths that, if you just read the strengths part, profiles very similarly to Jordan Love. And, of course, they make that selection come out of it, and you hear Matt LaFleur and Brian Gutekunst each use all of those same qualifiers, and it really makes you think that even back in February, whether or not they knew they were going to draft him, um, they they had their eyes on him for sure.
0: Yeah, really intriguing because I know the Colts fans, I know the Colts actually were one of the teams scouting uh, Jordan Love throughout the process here, and they seemed interested on the surface, but of course there was rumors about them possibly trading up here. Do you think the Colts having that room and interest around the NFL, Peter, played a part in the Packers moving up from 30 to 26 overall because there was so much smoke around the Colts with Jordan Love? I
2: think not just that, but if you look at, you know, the other teams that were reportedly interested, the New England Patriots were among those teams. Um, there was the, the Saints, um, the Steelers even a little bit. So, you know, you're talking about teams, first of all, New England had traded down. So could they move back up? Um, the Saints have never been shy about trading up to get their guy. And then the Colts. You know, they had that early second round pick. It would have been easy enough for them to get up to 28, 29 and jump the Packers. So I think Green Bay felt like when they got the deal that they did from Seattle and the receiver board broke the way that it did and have all those guys go off the board. I mean, I assumed going in that they were going to have the chance to draft, you know, either Brandon Ayuk or Michael Pittman, not just one of them um and and clearly they felt like the receiver board broke in a weird way for them so they had to move up and get their guy so of course I think you know the the Colts reported interest but but that coupled with the fact that there were multiple teams who are are in a position at that point to do it um that certainly played a role in all of this
0: the final draft question I have for you before we go into more uh, general based topics in the Green Bay Packers for a second just I know the Packers were one of the teams just nationally that had a quote-unquote, like, head-scratching draft," so to say, you go and get a quarterback when you have Aaron Rodgers, you draft A.J. Dillon in the second round. For for the, for Colts fans listening here who don't know much about the Packers draft and what your overall thoughts on it is, just what, what can you tell them as far as why your overall thoughts on the Packers and what, what kind of grade would you give them just off of immediate reaction?
2: Well, I mean, surprised, obviously, is the immediate reaction. That's not a grade, but certainly, um, you know, plays a, a role here. Uh, they got – some really good players and I think that's that's the the message that I've had to my audience over the last you know week 10 days but the value was not ideal Uh, running back in the second round you know AJ Dillon is probably more like the 75th best player than the 62nd best player so value wise that's not a bad deal except that they didn't pick you know, a lot of players that I thought were potential first-round talents even still available at that point in the draft. Josiah Deguara is a good football player, a versatile kid who's going to play a lot of snaps for Green Bay pretty early on, I think. And that doesn't mean that he's worth a third-round pick. Clearly, they disagreed. And, you know, whether or not that those guys turn out to be good players, I do think we can grade the process. I don't love the process but I do think the, the players that they drafted, and, and really to a man, I think all of them have um, paths to roles on this team, um, even if they're not all starters. I, I think overall it's, it's probably a C draft right now. If Jordan Love is a good player, though, if Jordan Love is a good quarterback, it's it's an A draft just because of of what a good quarterback can do for your team, and I don't think I have to sell Colts fans on that idea. They saw and have seen just like the Packers have. Um, they went from Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck, and and the the value there is just so high.
0: Yeah, franchise quarterbacks. If you see one, you have to take one. And in the situation that the Packers are in, of course, Aaron Rodgers in, into his late thirties now. Of course, the times run out a little bit on him. So we'll have to talk more about him in a second, Peter, because. I think with Aaron Rodgers, which hit on for a second, just the relationship with Matt LaFleur, the head coach. I know a lot of people were talking last year in the preseason about if they were going to get along or not. That Those little spats we heard about, I don't know if those are actually rumored reports or not, but it seems like there's a lot of smoke around LaFleur and Rodgers back in the preseason. And that kind of went away as the season went along as the Packers did well here. But what's that dynamic been like between LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers?
2: By all accounts, they've had an excellent relationship working together, and, and I had – uh, right guard Billy Turner on Lockdown Packers in the middle of last year, and he brought it up unprompted. Um, I, I hadn't even hinted at it, really. I just sort of, you know, let's let's talk about the new offense. You have to put it all in, and, and, you know, what was that experience like? And he brought up the quarterback-coach relationship and said, you know, people that are not in the building don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand. And part of the reason why they have a good working relationship is that Matt LaFleur on day one, walked into the Packers locker room and said, I know you've been used to doing things a certain way around here. We're going to do them a different way now. And and the guys bought in. They got buy-in early from these players. They changed the culture. I know that's an old cliche, but everyone around the team says it matters. And so it's one of those things that if everyone thinks it matters, it matters, right? I mean, whether or not it actually helps them play better is sort of irrelevant because they think it does. And if they think it does, then it does. So that is, that is part of why I think that Rogers has bought in because everyone did. It's, it's really hard to have an adversarial relationship with a coach. Everyone likes. Um, It's like, if you're, if you have a group of friends and you know, you're a jerk to the friend everyone likes, then even if you make a funny joke, they're all going to go, yo, relax because everyone likes that friend. So you know, even if if he wanted to be adversarial, it, it probably wouldn't fly. And so, from from the Packers' standpoint, having someone like Lafleur who commanded that respect right away, the Packers bet big on Lafleur in that way, and it paid off. And they've had a great working relationship, um, uh, really since since day one.
0: When you look at the Packers overall, Peter, I know it ended the way it did in San Francisco in the playoffs, but you, how much do you think the Packers have closed the gap, so to say, against the 49ers, the Saints, the other teams that were atop the NFC this past year alongside Green Bay? Because we hit on the draft a little bit. I know it was more towards the long term of going Jordan Love, Brown one, but how do you think the Packers address their needs to closing the gap with the teams atop the NFC?
2: I think the Packers closed the gap by staying status quo because I think the 49ers got worse. I think the Vikings got worse. Um, the NFC East is now more competitive. The Cowboys and Eagles are, are clearly better than they were last year, but it's it's hard to argue that they were better than Green Bay last year. Seattle looks worse. So it's almost like Green Bay just had to, to remain in stasis to elevate their standing in the conference. The conference is still going to be really deep. There's a lot of really good teams. I'm, I'm fascinated to see. You know, a team like the Cardinals, what do they look like this year? A team like the Rams, what do they look like? Could the Falcons, if their defense, stay healthy? But for the Packers, their biggest question is if their guys in year two and year three of NFL tenure, the guys who were drafted, you know, in in 17, 18, and 19, did they take those steps forward? You know, do, does Darnell Savage go from being a good rookie to a good NFL player because the standards are different? Does Rashawn Gary start looking like the twelfth overall pick? Does Jay Sternberger, you know, reward the Packers for not taking a tight end in this draft by becoming a, a reliable starting tight end in 2020? Um, I think there are some places that Green Bay got better. You know, improving the Geronimo Allison spot with Devin Funchess is certainly going to be an upgrade. I think you can make the case if Christian Kirksey is healthy, he's an upgrade over Blake Martinez. Um, and, and they clearly down, downgraded from Brian Bulaga to Rick Wagner. But with internal development um, and, and a year two of this offense, I think that's where they're looking to see the improvement on this team.
0: Yeah, and that's a really good point Bramp There is, there as far as the 49ers and the other teams top of the NFC. Really kind of lost a lot of peace, and ironically enough, DeForest Buckner, one of the best defenders, went to the Colts yep. side. And that's going to be really interesting because I think he's going to make a big impact on the Colts side. But I really wanted to close here, before we go on to our second segment, Peter, talking about just the Packers overall and their general manager, Brian Guttenkos, because I know Chris Bauer, the Colts GM, he gets a lot of love around the league, but also Guttenkos does as well. What's been your overall impressions going from Ted Thompson to Guttenkos and what he's done to improve his Packers team over the years?
2: Well, the thing that really stands out is is more about process than anything else, especially late in his tenure. Ted Thompson did not speak with the media, did not like to do it, did not do interviews even after the draft, did not do it. He would. He had an annual sit-down with a guy from the, the local paper that he had a longstanding relationship with, um, and, and that was really it. And Mike McCarthy was forced to sit up there and take the slings and arrows from the media about moves that the team was making when it should have been Ted Thompson. And I, I always um, I always felt like I, I lost a little bit of respect for Thompson for doing that because I think he's a really smart football person and and a really good general manager. And I just like then you need to stand behind your decisions. You need to be willing to stand up there like most other teams do and and make yourself available to the media to answer questions. Brian Gudekinst, if anything is overcommunicative, I mean, I, I feel like, during the season, there's, there's more opportunities to hear from him than, than I would even have time to listen to sometimes. Uh, his, his willingness to be transparent and be open about their process um, has really been um, eye-opening. And he's, he's clearly shown a willingness to use every avenue at his disposal to make this team better. In his first draft, he trades out of the 14th spot to get a future first-round pick from the Saints. They try and get in on the Khalil Mack trade. They signed Kyle Fuller to a restricted free agent tender um, they've they've signed big in free agency they've signed small in free agency. I think he is willing to do anything much like most of the Ted Thompson acolytes are guys like john Schneider, John Dorsey they have been much more willing than Thompson was to use free agency to use trades to make the team better and I, I think he he feels like um, you know the, the draft as the Packers always have is for the long term but that he's willing to use free agency to solve short-term problems like right tackle in 2020, like inside linebacker, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, definitely interesting stuff because the Green Bay Packers, I know they made a lot of noise on draft night with what they did, but I think overall in their offseason with what they've done over the years with Goon Kus at the helm, definitely one of the more intriguing teams to watch this year in the NFC. Before we go on to our next segment, just wanted to tell you guys if you have not already, to subscribe not only to Locked On Colts, but also Locked On Packers with with Peter as well, we do great work for you guys five days a week throughout the year. So if you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to our shows and enjoy the part two of our Locked On podcast crossover into segment two. And we'll be back in just a second. All right, we are back for segment two, and Peter, I know you probably have a lot of questions about this Colts team because who would have thought a year ago that Philip Rivers be the quarterback of the Colts, and especially with Andrew Luck, who was at the time before his retirement second MVP odds behind Patrick Holmes.
2: Yeah, the uh, the world looks very different now in in so many ways, doesn't it? Um, the it, I, I never thought, and I'm sure you know you as someone who's watched this team for a long time. You know, you think about some of the the battles that the Colts and the Chargers had in the playoffs, the Peyton Manning days. It seemed impossible to imagine Philip Rivers in an Indianapolis uniform. I, I guess the the big question for me is is going with a player like Rivers who is at the end of his career trajectory as opposed to going young and taking a Jordan Love or, or you know, even giving Jacoby Brissett another go at it, is that the right move right now for the Colts?
0: I, I, originally, Peter, I thought no, but the more I thought about it just over the last few months, I think it just makes a lot of sense, and especially with the Colts end up doing DeForest Buckner. They're in complete win-now mode. Their Super window is right now for the next one or two years. They, re-signed Castanza, they re Anthony Costanza. They're going to have T.Y. on the final swan song of his career in the next couple of years. I think it makes sense to go for it, honestly. And honestly, Jacoby Brissett, the last few months of the year, was really, really bad to watch from a viewing standpoint because he was just missing a lot of reads, a lot of wide-open guys. And this the Colts became a vanilla offense, a one-dimensional team run first around Marlon Mack. And Philip Brewers, of course, had his moments last year as far as inconsistencies through 20 interceptions. But I think a lot of those were impressed moments because – off the research that I did, he threw 35 throws in a game last year or more. He, they had an 0-9 record the Chargers did, and he had 10 touchdowns and 14 interceptions. But he threw less than 35 throws, Peter. He had 13 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, with over a 70% completion percentage and a 5-2 record. So I think this Colts team, with the way they built this offense, too, around Phillip Rivers, you have the offensive line, so he's protected back there. He doesn't have to worry much about that. The power run game with Marlon Mack and Jonathan Taylor just added in the draft. and you added Mike Pittman Jr., T.Y. Hilton, Paris Campbell, Zach Paschal, along with Jack Doyle and Trey Burton. They have a lot of pieces in place where the pressure really isn't on Phillip Rivers. I feel like, from a game manager standpoint, I think Rivers is a massive upgrade over a Jacoby Brissett. And it just seems like, to me, from what we've heard, the Colts just really weren't that interested in the top guys in this draft as far as quarterbacks go.
2: Yeah, and and you know, Philip Rivers is the kind of quarterback that I think can excel in a Frank Reich system. I wrote a, a feature a few years ago about Frank Reich and, and um, Nick Sirianni, about how they can protect Andrew Luck and, and finding ways to keep him on the field. And ultimately, that proved to be a fool's errand. Andrew Luck just you know was, was uh, worn out from the grind that, that it took on his body. But their point was, if you can win with your brain, if you can protect yourself that way, that's the best way to protect yourself. And it seems like Philip Rivers, as someone who has always made a living figuring out pre-snap where to go with the football, you know, sometimes he gets a little bit aggressive, throwing it downfield, of course, into traffic, but he's able to do that and and seems to fit with the kind of offense they want to run.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They really want to be a run-first team right now, and especially with Philip Rivers. He's going to open up more in the play action, but you go and get Jonathan Taylor at 41 overall, you trade up for him a couple spots. It, they have a mantra in Indianapolis, run the damn ball with Quentin Nelson up front. And you have the, the really the one of the top points of lines in the NFL. And they showed last year in games like against Kansas City. And you also throw in Atlanta as well, where they can really run the ball at will and just take teams out of it very early on. And adding in another dynamite stick like Jonathan Taylor to the rushing attack, I think, makes this a lot, make it a lot more sense for Phil Bruce to have a lot less pressure on him, like I mentioned. But also, he's so good at play action. He loves these big body targets. You have Michael Pittman in there as well at 6'4", 220. I just feel like everything's in place. And he also added the factor that Frank Reich and Nick Sirianni used to coach Philpers in San Diego, and he had one of his best years, completion percentage-wise, 69.1%. I just think it checks so many boxes, not from Riverside, but also the Colts' side, as to why they made this marriage happen.
2: Yeah, and, and the Colts' approach to the draft was sort of the opposite of Green Bay's. The, the Colts decided, okay, aging quarterback, add weapons – and worry about the future at the position in terms of quarterback later whereas the packers did the opposite they said here's Jordan Love he's the future of our franchise down the line and then here's some some sort of tertiary players from that standpoint do you think this approach sets up an opportunity that in a few years you know 2 years Jonathan Taylor ascends Michael Pittman Jr ascends two players that that green bay fans certainly were interested in and then they're they're going to you know draft someone? Or, or what is the plan here for how this offense moves through beyond just 2020 and 2021?
0: Yeah, I think what's really interesting, I know Rivers, Rivers Camp and also the Colts have mentioned this as well, that if Rivers plays well this year, he will be back in 2021. It, it's more of a pseudo two-year deal if all goes well this year. But you look at post-2020, 2021, Phil whenever he's gone from Indianapolis, they drafted Jacob Eason at 122 overall, the Washington quarterback. They did it, I think, just out of value alone. He was a day-two player, probably a top 75, top 80 player. Slipped to 122, so I think the Colts just might as well say, why not? They had no quarterback under contract through next season. So Eason either is the franchise quarterback of the future or he's just a long-term backup for this team. But tying a fourth-round pick and that little salary to Jacob Eason, there's no real risk as far as rolling the dice on him. He could be your franchise guy. He could not be. And I think you look at the 2021-2022 draft classes, they're so good at quarterback. I think the Colts just playing their cards right. And doing it conservatively right now and building the offense around Phil Brewers and really having these young weapons like Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman, they'll all be in their hopeful like near primes as this young quarterback, whoever it may be in a couple years, enters the system.
2: You mentioned the DeForest Buckner trade um, earlier, and and that was something that I was really fascinated by because it seemed like the 49ers decided, look, the money allocated to the defensive front um, cannot cannot be spread around to everyone at a certain point. They decided to pay Eric Armstead versus DeForest Buckner. That's really the ultimate decision that they made when this all went down. Were you surprised? Number one, that the 49ers moved on and number two, that the Colts valued Buckner so highly that they'd be willing to give up a top 15 pick and uh, a top of market, basically receiver salary for an interior defender.
0: Yeah, it was really shocking from all sides as it first broke because $21 $21 million annually for a defense tackle is is really big money, of course. That's Aaron Donald-type money for him. I know he, he makes around $22.5 million for the Rams, but Buckner, you have a player that was obviously wanting a big-money contract. He earned it with the way he played in San Francisco. But getting up the top 15 pick, Chris Bauer told us on his uh, press conference after this trade happened, that they valued Buckner so highly as far as not only on-field on impact, but also they valued character so highly in this organization that the team captain, he knows how to really help build a locker room and build a culture, like he did in San Francisco. And they believe Buckner could be a team leader on that side with Darius Leonard and formerly a dynamic duo with two All Pros now on defense there. And I think the impact that Buckner's going to have on all three levels of this Colts defense is going to be huge because the Colts were looking at defensive tackles in free agency. They were going to look at him in the draft, and DeForest Buckner is the best case scenario for anything. I think obviously they went with Javon Kinlaw, the 49ers, to replace Buckner, but. There's going to be no development curve for DeForest Buckner. He's right in the middle of his prime. He's going to help out right away and be an instant impact player. So I was, not a, I was not for it at first, but the more I saw it, I think it just makes so much sense because it's Colts team is in win-now mode and you add another all-pro to this team. it only ups their ceiling for this year.
2: Yeah, the thing that I've, I've been trying to impress upon uh, mostly 49ers fans is that Javon Kinlaw, for as good as, as you think he is as a prospect potentially, He's not going to be DeForest Buckner in 2020, just like under no scenario is that going to be the case. And so that is what the 49ers gave up. Now, maybe long term he is, but the Colts are going to get the better player in 2020. There's really no two ways about that here. So I'm looking at the Colts in the in the view of the AFC South and the Texans are in a weird situation I don't know what to make of the Titans coming off a season where it seems like they overperformed, and the Jaguars are the Jaguars. So when it comes to the hierarchy of the AFC South for 2020, how do you see this division?
0: I think, honestly, with what they did this offseason, adding in Phillip Rivers to Forrest Buckner and a lot more veterans win now. They get Michael Pittman Jr. and Jonathan Taylor as well to start things off in the draft. I think they kind of leapfrogged here, Peter, honestly, to the top of the division. And I think it makes a lot of sense because, like you mentioned, I think Tennessee – was very hot at the end of the year. They rode Derrick Henry to the ground a little bit. Ryan Tannehill was a good play-action passer, but was that just a one-hit wonder? I believe that was. I think they'll probably be a 9-7, and 8-8 and type of team. Like you mentioned, Jacksonville. I think Trevor Lawrence at this point with what they're doing with their team. And Houston, I mean, who knows what Bill O'Brien is doing, honestly, because he traded away their best player in DeAndre Hopkins. You have Deshaun Watson, of course, a quarterback, and they didn't really do much to address the offensive line outside of Laramie Tunsil last year. I thought they would do more with that in the draft, and... It's really curious what Houston is doing here. So I really believe that what the Colts did this offseason—you add in all these blue chip talents into this roster for a team would Jacoby set a quarterback, probably a top twenty-five, top thirty quarterback—they were still near five hundred. I think the leap they could take here is maybe even ten to eleven wins this year.
2: Yeah, I think the Colts are the favorite. Uh, I do wonder though if you asked, you know, the the guys over doing the Texans show or or uh, at On Titans, if they would agree. But I I agree with you, so I'm with you. Uh, It's going to be a fascinating season to play out, and and it will not surprise me if we're looking up in the AFC playoffs and the Colts are there with the Chiefs at the end of the run. I I think they're they're that talented, and uh, I think that much of Frank Reich and and that coaching staff, to be sure. Uh, Evan, this was great. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, look forward to doing this again in the season. Hopefully we have a season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know the Colts and Packers face-off, so we'll be talking again here soon, Peter.